from Perth, everyone. My name is Romola Vux, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to this UWA Research Impact Series event, From Cradle to Golden Years, A Happy, Healthy Life. It's an event we're running as part of National Science Week. Thank you for joining us, both from Perth, across Australia, and overseas. Welcome. The University of Western Australia acknowledges the custodians and traditional owners of the land on which our campuses are located. At the main campus, Crawley, where I'm speaking from now, the university acknowledges the Wajak Noongar people as the traditional owners of the land on which it is situated. And the Wajak Noongar people remain the spiritual and cultural custodians of their land and continue to practice their values, languages, beliefs and knowledges. So I'm Romola and I'm the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Science and a Professor in Psychological Science um, here at UWA and I'm personally committed to generating research that has impact across the lifespan. So tonight's panel is of particular interest to me because my own research focuses on understanding risk factors contributing to cognitive decline in aging so that we can all achieve a happy, healthy and long life. As you might imagine, creating new knowledge and building research capacity are at the heart of what we do as an institution. This includes using research to underpin our teaching and as well training and mentoring the crucial next generation of researchers. And the critical importance of research and research expertise could not be more starkly evident than now during the time of coronavirus. The unique contributions to human knowledge being shared with us today are so essential to our capacity to respond to this crisis effectively and with resilience. What some of you may know, but not all of you, is that the innovative research you're about to hear being discussed today has been supported through critical philanthropy to UWA, and we are enormously grateful for this generosity. I'm looking forward to hearing more from the panelists, after which I'll be back following the Q&A with some final comments. As you're listening to the panelists discussing with Sam, our moderator, and you have questions, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screens to pose your questions, and we'll get to the, as many of them as we can as we go. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you, introduce you to Dr. Sam Illingworth, a senior lecturer in science communication at the University of Western Australia, where he helps lead the science communication undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Hello, Sam. Over to you to introduce our panelists. Thank you very much, Romola, and really delighted to be here today to speak to you all about this amazing work. And we're going to start off with a panel discussion and um, following which there'll be a Q&A. So as Romola said, please do use the Q&A at the bottom of your Zoom to become involved in that discussion. I'd like to begin by introducing Professor Jane Pillow, Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Neonatology and Co-Director of the NHMRC Centre of Research Excellence for improving the immediate and longer term outcome of preterm infants and also an honorary research fellow at Telethon Kids Institute. Professor Pillow's research evaluates novel therapies for premature babies after birth to reduce the risk of damage to these fragile developing organs. And a major focus is to improve respiratory outcomes through development of new approaches to mechanical ventilation and postnatal care. Her latest clinical research includes trials of innovative respiratory treatments such as nebulized surfacent, a spray to reduce the requirement for intubation, and this has been supported by the Channel 7 Telethon Trust. Hello, Jane. Hi, Sam. How are you? Very good, thank you. Jane, I was just wondering if you could begin um, by just letting us know what advances there have been in medical innovation to aid newborns who have respiratory difficulties. Yeah, no, thank you for this uh, question, Sam. It's a really important one because advances in technology really have underpinned massive improvements in the survival of premature infants and babies globally, and especially in our uh, ability to care for those extremely premature uh, infants, the ones that are born uh, four to five months before uh, they were due to be born. So to help everyone understand why this is so, I guess 
I'd like you to just imagine for a moment about the challenge of looking after these tiny infants. So I want you to just look down at your cup hand and imagine that you're cradling one of these extremely premature babies just within that hand. It may have been born just at around 24 weeks gestation and it may have only spent a bit more than half the time it should have spent developing in its mum's womb. So all of its organs are not yet properly formed and the most critical of those organs are the lungs. The very, very first challenge this baby has to overcome at birth is to be able to get oxygen from the air into the bloodstream and from the bloodstream it can be transported in the cells all over the bottle which are critically dependent body sorry to uh, are really dependent on that oxygen for survival but the babies also need to be able to breathe out carbon dioxide which is the waste gas produced in the body doing those basic functions when a lot of these babies haven't yet developed those tiny air sacs that are responsible for gas exchange is a huge challenge um, and the, the good news is that we've actually made huge advances in simplifying that challenge over the last few decades. We've found ways to more rapidly mature the fetal lungs before premature birth. We've found ways to reduce trauma to those very fragile lungs using non-invasive modes of mechanical respiratory support that don't take over the baby's breathing and don't do damage to the lungs. But we've also made discoveries that surfactant, which is a natural detergent-like substance that's made by mature lungs, you and I are producing it all the time, and that surfactant is really uh, important for making lungs easier to inflate, uh, less likely to collapse, and less likely to pop, I guess, if you like, uh, if they over-inflate it. So the challenge that we've faced over the last decade has really been how to get that surfactant into the lung and to distribute it evenly all around the lungs without using a mechanical ventilator that would cause injury. And that's where the uh, research and the new grant that we're doing with the support of the Channel 7 Telephone Trust is really going to make a difference to these babies. What we're going to do with this research is to evaluate if the lung responds to surfactant if we nebulize it. So some people will be familiar with nebulization from uh, asthma perhaps, but we can also nebulize this uh, very special detergent into the lung. And that turns the surfactant, which normally comes as a liquid and normally has to be injected into the lung or pumped into the lung using a ventilator. The nebulization turns that liquid into a fine mist. And that advantage or the advantage of that particular approach is that then the babies who can breathe on their own just breathe in that mist while continuing to just be supported with some very gentle, non-invasive pressure support that opens their lungs rather than having to keep pumping surfactant under pressure with a machine that might injure the fragile lungs. That's great. Thank you, Jane. With regards to the technology that you're talking about there, um, does this have like an impact on inequalities globally? Is this something that's available um, to everyone? Oh, look, this will make a huge difference. We have about well, one in 10 infants born premature uh, globally. So there's about 15 million premature births uh, every year around the world. But the incidence of premature births and the number of actual births are much higher in less privileged and developing countries. And those are the places where resources are scarce and high cost technological healthcare just isn't achievable. So we need very, very simple treatments to stop premature infants or even six term infants from dying and to reduce the adverse impact of um, illness and respiratory illness at birth on their outcomes. So this new treatment that we're looking at meets all of the important criteria for delivery of surfactant to babies born in low resource and also remote settings. So the nebulizer pump that we use, it's very light, it's portable, it's battery operated, so it can be carried around just in the hand. Uh, we can couple this nebulizer pump with a pressure support device that just needs some air flowing through tubing uh, past the, the nose. And then the end of that tubing can just be submersed in a container of water to create bubbles. And those bubbles, believe it or not, really help the lung to remove the waste gas and as well as help the lung to inflate. And then we just couple all of that to a mask uh, that's put over the airway. And this mask uh, and the application of this can be used by any healthcare worker after just a few moments of training. So it doesn't need the specialized skills of a doctor like myself who's trained for years and years and years in looking after fragile infants. Uh, anyone can deliver this treatment 
um, to, to the babies in order to help them during those first critical moments of life. So it's not only in developing countries that that simple technology will have benefit, it's also in Western Australia, for example, the only hospitals looking after babies with serious breathing problems are in Perth. So for many families from regional Western Australia, this means that both the mother and the infant are often geographically separated from friends and families by thousands of kilometres and all the support networks that go with that. So just imagine if the babies with breathing problems, particularly those who are just a little bit premature, imagine if they could be looked after closer to home because this simple treatment could prevent them getting very sick. And that would be so much better for families and also reduce the cost of caring for premature babies. No, so I absolutely. I, I yeah. think that's that's fantastic, Jane. So, and I, I just invite everybody as well to um, put your questions in the questions and answers because um, we'll we'll be revisiting Jane and her work when we have the Q and A at the end of this panel discussion. But thank you so much, Jane, for okay. providing that fascinating insight into your work. Um, so, up next, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Dr. Bonnie Furzer. Uh, who's a teaching and research academic in the School of Human Sciences and also a senior exercise physiologist at Fremantle Hospital Mental Health Service. And Bonnie's also the founding director of the not-for-profit organisation Thriving, building strong and healthy young people through exercise. Bonnie's research and clinical work contributes innovative exercise programmes with physiological and or psychological benefits for those with unique needs, including children and youth, mental illness and chronic disease. And thanks to generous donors, including the Channel 7 Telethon Trust and the Commonwealth Bank, Bonnie and her team at Thriving are ensuring that vulnerable children and youth have access to research-informed exercise programmes with life-changing mental and physical health benefits. Bonnie, I was just wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit more about your work on research-informed exercise programme Thriving. I could talk about this all day. It's, it's certainly a passion project, but about 10 years ago, um, I'm working clinically as an exercise physiologist here in Australia. And we realized pretty quickly based on feedback from both parents and health professionals that there seemed to be a gap in therapeutic exercise programs for kids and young people that are based in the community, but still can't um, join school sport or PE or community-based activity. And so to kind of give you a bit of an idea of the kids we're talking about, it is children with uh, neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism or ADHD, where the socialisation or the communication aspects of sport just made it impossible for them to participate at the community, all the way through to kids that have completed medical treatments um, at our hospitals here in WA, so PMH at the time, now Perth Children's Hospital, and looking to transition back in. So it might be the child that's been undergoing uh, cancer treatment for a couple of years and have had great acute care. And now they're sort of transitioning back, but there's still a gap, kind of a catch up period that um, is needed in terms of fitness, motivation, confidence to, to be active. So we kind of saw this gap and we also realized pretty quickly that the families and kids we're talking about already had significant medical costs associated with um, the care and the treatment and ongoing support. So we were looking to how we could provide exercise that was evidence-based and research-informed, but also an environment that didn't add further burden. Um, so Telethon 7 Trust, uh, seven years ago now, um, helped us out initially to get started and we've been receiving um, funding from them ever since that basically provides subsidies for the families um, for their children to engage in these services. Um, and Combank have also for the last four years been supporting us to run um, a specialised program with WA Drug and Alcohol Youth Service. So that's young people that are receiving treatment for mental and substance use disorders. Um, I guess from a research side, we are researchers, so research is very much embedded, but it's embedded within this community service. So um, we've kind of have this vehicle for research that's like our living exercise lab. Um, so it allows us to kind of explore and understand the barriers and the facilitators a little bit more, but very much embedded within the community perspective. That's great. Thanks, Bonnie. And, and you touched briefly on um, you know, some of the 
most vulnerable and at risk um, communities that you work with. Um, how specifically does the programme act to benefit them and, and work with their needs and experiences as well? Yeah, so I guess for us, the most vulnerable are the kids that are falling between the gaps of this kind of acute care and community um, or school activities to be physically active. We hear lots of stories of the kids that are choosing not to participate um, because they've had negative experiences or they're being asked not or being excluded because there's physical risks or concerns that coaches or teachers and things are, are rightfully concerned about. Um, and we know that has immediate implications for their physical and mental health, but also lifelong because the patterns and experiences in childhood shape our habits and patterns as activities, um, as our patterns of activity um, as adults. So we really try and identify the potential physiological challenges young people face um, and ensure that they can have both a therapeutic exercise of um, program but also really positive experience so that hopefully in future wherever um, they are they have a positive um, kind of out, outlook on physical activity and, um, and exercise participation. That's fantastic thanks Bonnie uh, and we'll be talking again to Bonnie at the end of the panel discussion in the Q&A so if you've got any questions uh, regarding thriving or any of the other amazing work that Bonnie's doing please drop that into the Q&A box at the bottom and we'll pick that up later on. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, so up next, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, who is Dr. Helena Viola, who's a cardiovascular biochemist with a 15-year track record in translatable cardiovascular research. And she currently holds a National Heart Foundation of Australia Future Leader Fellowship, and has also received philanthropic support and won competitive funding throughout her career to support her research. This includes a RAIN Medical Research Foundation priming grant, an NHF and NHMRC postgraduate scholarship, NHF postdoctoral fellowship, and most recently, the new investigator grant. Um, with, um, with Helena's research, she investigates the mechanisms of ischemic heart disease resulting from narrowed heart arteries and genetic forms of heart disease, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a condition involving abnormal thickening of the heart muscle. Currently, she's focused on preventative therapies for those commonly occurring heart diseases. And this research is in association with Professor Livia Hull and her team, and has also been supported by uh, the Dizel family and the Dizel Foundation as well. So, hello, Helena. Hi. Um, hi. <laughs> Helena, um, lots of um, a, a broad range of research there, but I was wondering if you could start off by telling us how prevalent cardiovascular disease is in Australia and how preventable it is for men in comparison to women as well. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sam. So uh, cardiovascular disease encompasses diseases of the heart and the vasculature, and it is one of Australia's largest health problems. In terms of prevalence, um, if we look at statistics from the National Heart Foundation of Australia, we know that roughly 4 million Australians um, have some form of cardiovascular disease. So this equates to about 16.6% of the population. Uh, cardiovascular disease um, causes one in four of all Australian deaths, claiming the lives of about one person every uh, 13 minutes. So this is a particularly uh, harrowing statistic and I think it demonstrates um, the significance of this health problem. Uh, the majority of cardiovascular disease deaths actually occurred um, due to coronary heart disease, which we also know as heart attack. And we know that this occurs um, more often than men, in men than in women. Uh, the key risk factors for coronary heart disease include high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Um, and while over the last 10 years, we've seen the statistics drop slightly in um, cardiovascular, uh, in coronary artery disease deaths from about 49% in 2008 down to about 42% um, in 2018, um, coronary heart disease still remains the leading uh, cause of death in Australia. So, so if we turn to therapeutics for cardiovascular disease in men versus women or in anybody at all for that matter, um, we really first need to understand the biology of the disease states because it's only once we understand the biology and the underlying mechanisms of the disease that we can then go in and start thinking about ways to design um, therapeutic interventions. So in the case of heart attack, for example, um, we know that men and women present differently in that they have 
different symptoms, so the symptoms vary. So I think this gives us a good clue that perhaps the underlying biology, biology differs too. I think another important thing to know is that premenopausal women are actually more protected from coronary heart disease, but uh, women in the 40 to 50 year old age bracket are actually more likely to suffer from a SCAD, which is a spontaneous coronary artery, which is spontaneous coronary artery um, dissection. So these women, um, interestingly, have no other uh, risk factors. So while the story is fairly complicated, I think the overarching uh, message here is that it is very important for us to stand, understand the biology of the disease state. And I think this highlights the, the importance of scientific research, because as I said, if we, if we can understand the, the mechanisms of the disease, we can start looking at ways to intervene. Fantastic. Thank you, Helena. And just wondering as well how you've been able to apply your research to therapeutic interventions that can actually help those suffering from cardiovascular disease as well. Sure. So I've touched a little bit on um, some of the differences between men and women in, in, in uh, cardiovascular disease, specifically in relation to coronary heart disease. Um, but believe it or not, there are actually some similarities between men and uh, women as well. Um, and this brings me to familial cardiomyopathy. And this is something that we're very interested in the lab as well. Um, so familial meaning um, family, cardio meaning heart, and myopathy meaning diseased muscle. Um, and we know that this occurs due to genetic mutations in the heart. And this, um, this also um, places, uh, significantly contributes to the cardiovascular disease burden in Australia. Um, interestingly, no, interestingly though, we know that the number of deaths are roughly equal in males and females. Um, we know that about one in 500 people carry these gene mutations and that this is the most common genetic form of cardiovascular um, disease and it's the leading cause of sudden death in the young. So we're talking about the five to 15 year old um, age bracket and in actually young healthy athletes. So one of the themes um, that we're interested in in the lab is, as I've mentioned, understanding the early mechanisms of one of these types of familial cardiomyopathies being hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So what happens here is that genetic mutations in the contractile proteins in the heart, so these are the proteins that allow the heart to expand and contract and allow it to, um, to maintain the heartbeat, um, are mutated. And in this leads to the enlargening of the heart. Uh, this is what the word hypertrophy means. It means enlargening of the heart. And this then can lead to the development of sudden cardiac death. So with... Um, generous support from um, places like the National Heart Foundation of Australia, NHMRC, the RAIN Medical Research Foundation, and of course, the Dalzell family. Um, we've been able to, over the past several years, start looking at these mechanisms. And what we've found is that in, um, in heart cells um, of, um, of enlarged hearts, we have a communication breakdown between a channel that resides in the, in the plasma membrane of the heart cell and an organelle inside the heart, which is responsible for generating the um, energy required for the heart to beat. So we have a communication between breakdown between the two because of these genetic mutations. And this actually leads to an overproduction of energy in, um, by the mitochondria. And with more energy, um, the heart, because it's a muscle, works harder. And as with any muscle, it, it gets bigger, hence um, becoming hypertrophy. Um, so one of the things that we're very excited about is our research where we've actually looked at a particular novel peptide that specifically targets the heart in these um, in animal models of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which actually acts to restore this communication breakdown, normalise the energy production from the mitochondria and actually prevents the development of an enlarged heart. Um, as with body, I could talk about this all day, but um, one of the exciting things about this is that um, the drug has, um, doesn't appear to have any side effects and is, is actually non-toxic. So um, the only Fantastic. other thing... Yeah, sure. Thank, thank you, Helena. So um, if, if people have got questions for the whole up with Helena, please drop them into the Q&A at the bottom and we'll pick those up as well. Thank you very much for that insight into your fascinating work, Helena. Uh, and then and finally on the panel, I'd like to introduce uh, Professor Leon Flicker. So. Uh, Leon is the executive director at the WA Centre for Aging and is a key opinion leader in health and aging. In 2017, he was honoured with an officer of an Order of Australia for contributions to geriatric medicine and dementia prevention and care. And his research focuses on the major health issues of older people exploring general health, falls, depression and cognitive impairment. 
He's current research is supported through a Royal Perth Hospital Medical Research Foundation Innovation and Impact Grant and includes the HAIRCOG study, which involves hearing aids to support cognitive function of older adults at risk of dementia. The precursor to this was the Ronin Peggy Bell Family Legacy supported trials and research into the long-standing relationship between the correction of hearing loss and cognitive function. So um, welcome, Leon. Thank you very much for joining us. And Leon, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us how philanthropic support has assisted the WA Centre for Ageing and its activities, please. Well, I guess, firstly, I'm in the middle of the Medical Research Foundation building at Royal Perth Hospital. And so that's been philanthropic support over many years has enabled this building to exist and the MRF, the Medical Research Foundation, to provide some springboard and some beginnings of funding for interesting work. But particularly, I'd like to talk about the Ron and Peggy Bell Family Foundation, which have been supporters of us for many years now, for in excess of a decade. And one of the things about that is that it's enabled us to bring new people in to do new things, which is really important. One of the, one of the problems about the traditional funding mechanisms is that you really have to show a lot of prior work to get some traction to get a nationally competitive grant. And if you have philanthropic money, it enables you to bring in people who don't necessarily have much of a track record just yet. Uh, they can be supported for a period of time to gain the really important initial work, get some run, runs on the board, and then to progress that to a national grant. And we've been doing this now in partnership with Ron and Peggy Bell for uh, quite some time. We've been looking at a lot of different things. We've been looking at mental health um, training and the effect on cognitive abilities in older people. We've been looking at coaching through the menopause transition and showing that that helps people stay engaged with life as well as decreasing their risk of depression. We've been looking at uh, the hearing loss studies, which have been very important. And now one of the really important things about people as they grow older and developing cognitive impairment and perhaps Alzheimer's disease or dementia is there seems to be lots of environmental factors that are really important. And these can be ameliorated by simple strategies. And each time we've been able to use the foundation money to bring a new person in to do a new idea. And um, that's been great. It's really, and. It, and I must admit, it's exciting for us because new people with new ideas is what university is about. Great. Thank you, Leon. And, and you touched on that briefly, Leon, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little on what lifestyle factors help us to age well and avoid disease and when we should start practicing those as well. If there's any like top tips we should all be looking out for. So recently, the World Health Organization has defined healthy aging as the process of developing and maintaining your functional ability that enables well-being in old age. And developing and maintaining your functional ability is a process that starts prior to birth. And we've already heard from Jane how important that period at birth and a bit before birth. And as we go through the life course, it's really fundamental that we try to maintain as healthy a state as we can. And we try to develop the maximum amount of intrinsic activity in our young adulthood. And then we seek to maintain that throughout our life by looking at simple lifestyle and health tips that keep people working better. Now, a lot of this is really fairly straightforward, but we know that um, what we're doing seems to be working because we have never lived longer than we are now. We have uh, some amazing a number of older people living into 80s and 90s right now. And this is continuing. And the way this is happening is because we are decreasing the risk factors for getting illness and we're maintaining our health by physical activity, stopping smoking, <clears throat> good nutrition, uh, 
um, an engagement in life and simple health things like blood pressure, diabetes, all the things that everyone knows about as we grow older and it's really working. That's great. Thank you so much, Leon. Um, so we've come to the end of the panel discussion now. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to invite all of the panelists to turn their videos on if they're able to, and um, we're going to work our way through some of the questions. We've had a lot of these. I'm going to direct them towards uh, our panelists. Um, but if other panelists feel as though they have a, a valid contribution, please also do, do chip in. So Jane, quite a lot of questions towards uh, your amazing research. And um, I'm just going to summarize a couple of them here. So we've got, um, similar questions from Geraldine and um, Leroy here, who are asking about, are there any risks to premature babies associated with the nebulizer? And to what extent does that maybe distress the baby at all? Uh, look, so, I mean, that's one of the, the amazing things about this, this treatment. Um, and one of the things that's always scared me about giving surfactant to these little babies is although it's a life-saving treatment, when we give it in its liquid form, uh, we often see the airway blocked and the, uh, the baby becomes temporarily uh, quite unstable clinically. But when we give it in a nebulized form, the baby's lying there breathing away. Um, I've watched when I've put it on with a mask just onto the baby's face. As soon as the mask goes on and they start breathing, they visibly relax. And uh, you can see over a period of 15 to 20 minutes that their breathing becomes much more um, easy. Uh, for them, much less stressed, uh, and they, they work quite well. So we haven't been able to observe any uh, problems for the babies during that taking it. Thanks, Jane. I've got some more questions I'll come back to you in a minute with as well. So this question's from Ivor, and I'm going to direct it to um, Bonnie first, but then Leon might want to chip in as well with some, some thoughts. So Ivor says that as a child, he hated sport and it, it seemed pointless to him. And, uh, you know, 75 years later, he still doesn't see the point in placing a ball into various shaped receptacles. Uh, <laughs> however, he's very well aware of the physiological benefits of exercise. So his question is, how can you motivate youngsters like like Ivor was who have, don't have an interest in sport? Or is accepting sporting scores have any lasting importance? So how can we motivate people like Ivor, uh, Bonnie, and then maybe Leon as well? Great question. Um, I think this idea that it has to be sport to be physically active is probably one of our, the biggest misnomers. Particularly in kids, we think that we need to encourage them to play team sports and games. And particularly in Australia, it's you know football, netball, swimming, us. Um, our key thing is finding some way that kids can have a positive experience with physical activity, particularly if they hate sport and like you, they can't see the point of a ball in a net or tackling someone to the ground. Um, so we work with the kids and the families to find something that allows them to get the physiological benefits. Um, and we certainly do focus on that. So we educate the kids and the families around what is going to be the most beneficial for them based on their health, but also then find something that they enjoy. It could be hiking, it could be orienteering, it could be fishing, it could be stand-up paddleboarding if you're in WA. Um, there are endless options, and I would say that that's throughout the lifespan, there are endless options for being active. If you don't enjoy it, it's you're never going to stick with it. So. And Leon, did you have anything to add to that? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that we've found in our work is that early life um, physical activity is important. But for middle-aged and older people, physical current physical activity is really important. That's the major thing that works. So I've always interpreted these data that sport is wasted on the young and we should all be taking it up in middle age and old age. And that's one of the really important things, that you're not too old to take it up. The other thing that I think that people get confused on the public health message is that when you look at the response curves to physical activity, most of the action is early on. So people who are sedentary are a lot worse off than the people who do 10 minutes of something a day. So, you know, we aim for this 150 minutes of moderate vigorous exercise, but if you're middle-aged and older, 
the most of the benefit you get from physical activity occurs within the very early part of the curve. So if you're sedentary, just doing five or 10 minutes of walking a day makes a huge difference. It's about half of the response that you'll get from anything in physical activity. So it's never too late. If you want, you can take up sport as you grow older. It'll do you a power of good. Don't worry if you didn't like it when you were young, you'll probably like it better when you're older. And that's, that's, you've also answered several of the people who have been asking rather politely, you know, I'm of a certain age, am I too old? Is it, am I now doomed, Leon? So it seems that that's not the case. And I think what Leon's encouraging everyone who's, you know, 55 and above to do is to maybe take up Aussie rules football as a, as an option to, to, keep you, to keep you going in the future as well. Uh, so Helena, we heard from Leon and Bonnie there about you know, steps that we can take towards um, improving our chances of, of living a long life. But obviously for some people, that's slightly complicated because of um, the, their genetics and the way that they're born. And what exactly is it that makes the genetic mutation of the heart, um, especially looking at some of the, the, the issues that you've been surrounding looking at as well? Yeah, um, it's so the sorts of things we're looking at are, fam are familial, um, so they're inherited, they're genetic, and people are born with these with things without any not, you know, without any particular reason. They didn't know they had them, and quite often people um, will collapse and cardiac arrest, and they didn't know that they had one of these mutations. So I think one of the things that we've been looking at recently, particularly in Western Australia, is trying to improve our database. Um, there is a database in the East Coast, in New South Wales, where um, some of this information is being collected um, so that we can track um, people who have these genetic mutations. And this will help inform um, their children as well in terms of whether or not they may be at risk of um, having one of these genetic mutations. This, the research that we do is very heavily um, focused on preventative therapies. So this actually would um, very much assist us in um, directing um, how to approach the um, therapy regimes. That's great. Thank you so much, Helena. Um, and Jane, returning to your work, I'm just going to read this out verbatim as it's a really lovely, uh, lovely worded question from Roberto. He says, I'm interested in the treatment of infections in premature babies with impaired lung function. How do we treat these little cradles of joy with antibiotic treatment when they are in such a fragile state with impaired and reduced lung function? And how do we successfully treat infections if they do occur in premature babies? Yeah, so that's a really important question because infection is really one of the biggest uh, hurdles that we have to overcome. These babies are incredibly immunosuppressed uh, when they're born and they're very, very prone to infection. So we do treat them with antibiotics and we treat them, believe it or not, we can get little cannulas into their tiny, tiny little vessels. Um, that's part of training to be a neonatologist. Uh, and sometimes also we do nebulize the uh, antibiotic directly into the lung if we've got a really, really difficult lung infection to treat. But one of the things we're, we're looking at and some, some new research that we're about to start is looking at um, some synthetic sort of antimicrobial peptides, tiny little proteins that seem to have some antimicrobial activity without being antibiotic. So this is really, really important because it might allow us to prevent the infections in this ba these babies, prevent them getting um, inflammatory responses that are, are harmful and protect their microbiome. And some of you might have heard about the importance of microbiome to, to gut health, uh, but also to the health of many organs. So that's going to be some really exciting research coming up. That's great. Thanks, Jane. So, Bonnie, lots of really positive comments about um, your work in your organisation. Um, and I think quite a few people are just wanting to know um, to what extent you're able to track some of these exercise participants into young adulthood and if they've continued to exercise and, and reap the rewards of that exercise beyond the formal programme. So those questions have come from Kate and Kirsten there. Thank you. Um, it isn't something that we've had the capacity um, to do yet in terms of track long-term from a research perspective. Um, but I can say anecdotally from working in the program, um, we have kids and families that stay with us. They basically choose when they, they graduate from the program. Um, and so we 
often have them stay for a few years and then very happily get to transition them out onto other things. Um, that's kind of the biggest win for us, um, which is kind of counter to, to working, <laughs> but the big win is when they transition out. The other interesting thing that we're actually seeing with um, some of our kids is they're staying with us in a mentoring role. So they then work alongside our university students um, as they're completing their certificate three in fitness, which is what it is in here in Australia. So when they're sort of 16, 17, 18 years old, um, as a pathway for them to develop some employment skills, um, which particularly in some of these kids where they are, are challenged in that, has been a really um, interesting, unexpected outcome of the program. And that's certainly something that we kind of want to explore a little bit more in the future as well. That's great. Thanks, Bonnie. And Helena, I mean, on, on the subject of tracking and, and progress as well, James wants to know what stage you've got to in trialling the novel peptide for treating hypertrophy at the moment. Sure. So we're actually very excited to say that we're, um, we've just finished a, a full trial with, um, with an animal model of the disease and um, done a full characterization of the function of this peptide and demonstrated that it does in fact restore energy um, production in the, the heart cells prevents the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And like I mentioned, it's not toxic. It doesn't appear to have any um, adverse um, side effects. This is extremely important because um, it's one thing to say that a particular drug might um, prevent a particular pathway, but it's another thing if you administer it in the whole system in vivo and it clogs up the kidneys or causes liver failure. So from here, the next thing is to move into larger animal trials, um, particularly in, we're particularly interested in toxicity effects. Um, and of course, um, in view of translating eventually, hopefully to the, um, to the clinic. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so Leon, Melissa's got a question here that I really wanted to know as well. Uh, which is how can hearing loss impact the risk of cognitive impairment? Uh, that, that, that really fascinates me. Yeah, so, um, well, we have been involved in this work for a little while now too. And firstly, in um, observationally, we find that people who have hearing loss, if you follow them for 10 or 20 years later, they're more likely to get dementia and cognitive decline. So that's the first thing is that there's a, we can see this effect in humans and it's been calculated. This is actually quite, if you looked at the burden of illness associated with hearing loss for dementia, it's actually quite large. So it's quite an important effect. Now, the way it could work is that hearing loss could decrease your social functioning and your involvement in the world. And that might be why it's doing it. It could decrease your central processing of not only, not only sounds, but other parts of the brain. Or it could even be that the, the hearing loss you have is secondary to a malfunction of the brain itself, which causes both the hearing loss and, and, the, um, and dementia. So it could be due to any of these three major ways of thinking about it. That's great. What, Thanks, Leon. Yeah. So I was just about to say, what, no, one of the it. ways of addressing it is actually to give people hearing aids and see what happens, because that oh, would fantastic. be more suggestive, giving people hearing aids earlier in a trial to see if that makes a difference. Thank you, Leon. We've got so many questions that I'm, I'm going to... We've got time to plough through one more question each, as long as um, my esteemed panellists are incredibly succinct in their answers, which they have been today. Uh, so, Jane, um, question, last question for you from, um, this is from, um, who's this from? Oh, this is from uh, John. He says, um, does climate matter for the effectiveness of the nebulized surfacent? So, for example, is it better in dry versus humid or hot versus cold climates, which obviously might have an impact, depending on where we're using it in the world? We, we actually heat and humidify all the air that the babies breathe uh, to a standard level um, so that uh, the actual climate doesn't make any difference. That's great. Thanks, Jane. Um, so, Bonnie, a, a few people have asked a similar question here, um, one of them being Tori, which is to what extent do, are you finding that the physical activities are having a positive impact um, on the mental health um, and mental needs of the children that you're working with as well and the young people? 
really significantly. Um, so we have done a couple of trials with our younger kids um, across a concept called physical literacy. And we see that there is certainly psychosocial motivation, confidence, things that you can't separate out from the physiological. We get benefits across both. In the work we've done with the drug and alcohol youth, um, that has been really interesting because their exercise participation and importantly, how much they enjoyed it was actually linked to their confidence in abstaining from using substances. And it was also linked to sleep um, and improvements in sleep and emotional regulation. So they are really key outcomes in terms of drug and alcohol rehabilitation. So that was kind of a, an unexpected but significant impact that um, we're looking to make operationalize a little bit more now in future. No, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bonnie. And then Helena, very quickly, I guess, what are the next stages for you with the trial is something that Johnny wants to know. Mm, so we're actually looking at the peptide sequence of the drug at the moment, because one of the things we're looking to do is shorten that sequence. It will help reduce the cost of the, um, the peptide and potentially even increase specificity for the, for the heart. Perfect. Beautifully succinct there, Helena, as well. And then Leon, to finish with you as well. Um, basically, is there any collaboration that's going on with other ageing countries like China, India, Japan springs to mind as well um, quite readily with the work that you're doing? So I chair the Asia Pacific Geriatric Medicine Network, and there is actually active collaboration through our region. So we last met uh, last time face to face in Delhi. We're due to meet in China. These countries in Asia have the most rapidly aging populations in the world, and they know it, and they're dealing with it in interesting and novel ways. We have so much to learn from our Asian neighbors, and a lot of it, they're very impressive. I go to Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. These, these nations have actually developed services and skills that we have a lot to pick up from. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Leon. So thank you to all of the panelists, to Jane, to Bonnie, to Helena and to Leon for this riveting discussion and for the Q&A as well and for answering all of your questions. We got through almost all of them and I'm just going to pass back over to Romola now who's going to wrap up with some closing remarks. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sam. Um, let me reiterate again on my own behalf and on behalf of all of our, our guests tonight, a big thank you to, to Jane, Bonnie, Helena and Leon. Uh, for your absolutely fascinating insights and for making it so accessible, and to Sam, our wonderful panel moderator. I wanted just to draw together some themes that, I, that, I, that struck me from what you were all saying today. Um, one of those themes was about access to healthcare, including uh, access to, to healthcare and, and treatments in regional and remote areas, which isn't just relevant to Australia, but also, as you mentioned, to India and China maybe Japan and other countries where there may be people living quite a long way from centers of, of healthcare excellence. Another theme that really came out at me from all of your talks was about vulnerability, whether that's prematurity, children with neurodevelopmental conditions or medical conditions, people with mental and substance use disorder problems, people with heart disease, even young, young athletes. Uh, right up to, to people with dementia. And there's a, a common theme there of all of your work is about uh, developing treatments or interventions or informing the science that helps us do that with the aim of improving health and quality of life. And to do that, and I think this is critical, is we need to understand the underlying mechanisms. And that was a very strong theme in all of your, of all of your discussions whether that's about how the lungs develop in the womb and therefore how we need to um, support premature um, babies, whether it's how exercise improves well-being, the biology of heart disease, how communication breakdown within the heart leads to novel treatments, or how hearing loss um, or um, physical exercise um, reduces or increases risk of dementia. And so there was that common theme of access and vulnerability treatments, but informed by a very strong evidence base of what are the mechanisms of harm and how does that direct us to develop treatments that we can then evaluate. And so that's a very powerful message for me. 
And the final piece was about the importance of philanthropy for helping you, the panelists, to, to build research capacity um, for research that extends across the lifespan from prematurity to, to dementia. And so I really do want to reiterate how grateful we are for the philanthropic assistance that has enabled the, the, the work that you've described so beautifully tonight. And on behalf of UWA and the panelists, you've said it already, but I'll repeat it. Thank you, those of you um, who've contributed for your past support and say thank you, hopefully, for future support. As you can see, and this is just a sample of, of what UW researchers are doing, we're working on some of humanity's grandest and most uh, important challenges. And so I invite you, the audience, if you want to be a continued part of similar conversations, please join future research impact events. And in fact, our next event, your next opportunity to do so, is the UWA round of the three minute thesis competition for 2020. And this is where our PhD students, so our young scientists, will explain their research in three minutes flat, and that's no mean feat. And that's going to take place on September the 10th. And our alumni and our guests tonight, or everyone from our community, will be invited by email and, and through social media and so on, both to view the finalists' entries, and you'll be able to um, vote for a three-minute thesis People's Choice Award. So don't miss that. The three-minute thesis will be streamed live. And for those people who miss the live streaming or want to listen again later, we will record and post those for your later listening pleasure. So that brings me to the end of tonight's event. Thank you all so much for joining this research impact event and asking such fantastic questions that made it such an engaging um, uh, conversation. Good night, everyone, and stay safe. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs, or high-fives. But we are still part of the global UWA community. And have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all of our students, students start and graduate. graduate. Through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation. Send, Send a message, message of support. support. Become a mentor, ambassador. Or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part and, and help, help the global, global UWA, UWA community. community.